0: Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I'm your host, Eric Fleming. And I guess this podcast is can be viewed as coming from a dark place. And I say that because a lot of us in the black community are still angry and we still feel disrespected even though we just had an election and you know some some dynamics have happened i think people need to understand why certain things happened in those elections now Locally, some history was made and messages were sent. And when I say locally, I'm talking about in the state of Georgia, especially in the metro Atlanta area. Right. Which makes up an overwhelming majority of the electorate in the state of Georgia. Um, Well, I should say sector, not majority. But anyway, it's a major, major part of the electorate in the state. And um, you know some some messages were sent, and like I said, some history was made. But nationally, we saw a shift in Virginia, and we almost saw a shift in the governor's mansion in New Jersey, right? And the same old things are playing out. When the Republicans win, everything's fine. The Democrats win. Something must have happened. So I think that there are two groups in America that are misreading Black people and misreading America as a whole. Um, and they, they're they so used to doing things the quote-unquote old-fashioned way or the way politics has been playing out since the eighties that they don't really know how to deal with the fluctuating dynamics. And they don't really know how to do substantive work with courage. Um, And they're letting other things still continue as they were prior to the eighties, as far as jury selections and all this kind of stuff. Right. And I'm going to touch on a lot of that stuff. So it's going to kind of seem like it's a hodgepodge kind of show. And I guess it is really because we saw what well, we continue to see frustration. So I mentioned in one pack podcast about the vaccinations and I, I encourage people to get them. Uh, I got mine and um and I actually had COVID prior to it. I'm uh, not one of those people who've gotten COVID since then. Uh, and, you know, I just encourage people to do it. I guess part of the issue, though, is these mandates. Uh, we've seen in the sports world how the mandates are impacting star athletes you got one star athlete because the city he plays in mandates that every place of employment that people need to be vaccinated he can't play on his team because he has chosen for every reason not to right and we saw another star player miss a game and may actually have to pay a fine because he wasn't truthful about being vaccinated and he didn't follow protocols as if he was unvaccinated and he ended up catching COVID, which led him to basically trash the mandate or say that people who are advocating vaccines are trying to cancel out people who don't. Let me just say this to you. If you don't want to take the vaccine, you may be canceling yourself out. Just saying. Uh, this coronavirus is nothing to play with. I literally saw a man go into the hospital in a week and I was talking with him, joking with him, and a week later he was dead. And he was an older gentleman. You know, like I said, I am in my mid fifties. I caught it and it was nothing more really to me than about with the flu based on how my body responded to it. And I'm very fortunate that my immune system is strong enough where it repelled it. Um, But not everybody is like that. And so I really, really wish that people would do it on their own volition. So we wouldn't have these mandates out here because the mandates is basically the government saying for the public health of the nation, it doesn't matter if it's a municipality or state or even federal employees, you need to protect yourself and others because that's the key thing that we always run into. It's the same issue with the seat belts, right? We ran into that, you know, was my prerogative, whether I want to wear a seatbelt or not until you fly through the windshield. And then you have to show up at a publicly funded hospital to be treated for your injuries We try to save your life. The same thing with coronavirus, COVID-19, however you want to call it. Same thing. So, you know, people are protesting. We got firefighters protesting. We have athletes protesting and all that stuff. And not all of them are white people. These are Black people who have taken positions one way or the other. And from a Black perspective, there's some history behind that, right? As far as the Tuskegee experiment and the quote-unquote father gynecology and all that stuff, right? And how they use Black people, um, especially slaves, in the case of the gynecologist, but use Black people for experimentation. I would say that this is not the case. This is the whole world trying to figure out how to stop something they can't see from continuing to wreak havoc on the day-to-day lives, let alone the economies of nations, right? I mean, this coronavirus has done everything, but I want people to, that are in public positions to really gauge the community about how these mandates are going to happen. And employers, especially public sector employers, how they really want to deal with this situation without trying to be punitive or judgmental, right? So That issue alone has people angry. And kind of the theme of what I want to say to folks is that we got to stop fueling anger in the public sector because it's going to be a cross, right? I mean, let's look at Yeah, well, just that's my take on the vaccine part, right? About the anger. I think people need to not be so angry about it. I understand they're dealing with people's livelihoods and all that. And you should raise your voices. But. if, 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 if people who are putting these vaccines mandates out are doing it in a way where it's not trying to be malicious to people. You know, I think that, you know, if, if, if you're an employer and you have an option for people to stay home, you could possibly give that. But as far as, I. I don't know. I mean, I think if I was an elected official, I probably would do the same thing, but I probably would try to gauge the community because the pandemic is still out there, but it's not the crisis that it was. So I think you have time to really kind of feel what's going on, understand the dynamics of the community that you're representing or leading and then try to come up with a way to manage that. Um, You can set deadlines. You can work with waivers, whatever the case may be. But we elected officials have an obligation to do no harm. And I think when we look at the way that that policy has done, has been issued out. And then the defiance of the other, well, well you know, we're, we're not gonna do that at all. Well, now, I don't know if that's an aggregating community either just not to do it at all or to tell people they can't do it, right? You know, again, people's health, the welfare of the nation In regards to health, shouldn't be politicized to that extent. Because I think when you politicize it, you're fueling the anger. And then switching over to another subject, we're in Brunswick, Georgia, right now. We're the only network covering this trial, Ahmaud Aubrey's trial. Trial of his uh, accusers, I mean his his murderers. I'm sorry, or I should say, the people accused of murdering him. Right? Um, there's only the black n- news channel is the only station covering the trial. Now, granted, it's important for black people to see justice done. But just like the George Floyd case, this is a unique situation because with the George Floyd, Derek Chauvin case, Derek Chauvin was a police officer, right? And that was dealing with the brutality of police officers in performing their jobs and that that excessive violence is not necessarily needed to make our community safe especially African-American communities and their citizens. But this Ahmaud Arbery case is a different animal because these were private citizens who took it upon themselves to use a law to quote unquote make a citizen's arrest and a person who we will never know if they were innocent or guilty of what they were accusing them of was murdered, unarmed. They say it was self-defense and they're using the same strategy like with George Zimmerman that a black man with two fists is more dangerous than a white man with a gun. Right. And so. We're going through this now, the biggest controversy that has happened so far is the makeup of the jury Now they moved it to Glynn County, which is basically on the coast of Georgia. And in the town of Brunswick, as I mentioned, Brunswick has a population percentage-wise about over 50% black, say around 55 at least percent black, 33% white. But the jury makeup is 11 whites and one black on the jury for this particular case. Now, we can get into a debate about whether this is a jury of peers or not, since the accused are white men, but the victim was black. And there should be some voices in the room. But, you know, the jury selection process is what it is, but it gets back to a whole nother topic which is registered voters. Now, Georgia is kind of unique in a lot of states is that the overwhelming majority of the citizens of Georgia are registered to vote. It's one of the highest registration rates in the nation. So the jury pool should not have been a problem as in other states, right, because they, pick the jury based on who's registered to vote. And then, you know, you go through the process of disqualifying yourself and then you go through the process of the the attorneys on both sides selecting the jury, but somehow the prosecutors and the defense agreed that 11 whites and one black was fair in this case. I hope the prosecution is that confident in their evidence, which they should be, in their due diligence, that that makeup would still lead to a guilty conviction. And maybe that's the point they're trying to make, that even though it was white men who killed a black man in broad daylight, that 11... White people will see that as an injustice, and it's not necessarily a given that the black person will agree. Because you got to have all twelve, mm-hmm. right? It's not a given that the black person is going to say, "Oh yeah, well, yeah, he did, they did it." But considering the amount of publicity that this case did get originally. Be hard pressed if the evidence presents itself for somebody to say, Well, there's some doubt on that. Right? So people are angry. And, but it's an anger that you have to subdue because you have to trust a system that really has not earned our trust. Right? As you see, as I keep talking about things that are making us angry and issues that are coming before us, right? that it's really, really complex. It's not really simple. It's not simple to have six Blacks and six whites on a jury. It's not that simple. Um, It's not simple to determine whether a mandate should be placed on vaccines for the public health benefit of a community. But the responses is what really concerns me about it. And I guess in the second half, we'll talk about where I think that comes from. And people will agree, disagree, whatever. But I wanted to throw that news item out there. And then finally, the other news item I wanted to talk about was the infrastructure bill. So it passed. $1.2 trillion. If you're a conservative, you're freaking out. If you're a liberal, you're kind of celebrating you're a Democrat, whew, we got something passed. There's a sigh of relief there. And the Republicans are like, well, we had Manchin and Cinema do the best they could and watered her down as much as we could. And here we are. Right? Members of the squad, as we refer to them, all voted against it. Uh, for those who are not familiar, there are several female members of the U.S. House of Representatives who were dubbed a squad because they're all pretty much of the same political ideology. They're all women of color. And, uh, of course, they're Democrats. I say, of course, because it was the conservatives, the Republicans that gave them the label and they embraced it. And they all voted against it. They voted against the infrastructure bill that will help in their communities. But their issue wasn't the bill itself. It was what wasn't in the bill, which was the $1.8 trillion for the build back better legislation. It would have done a lot to help families and underserved communities. Everything from making sure that people could go back to work um, after the pandemic, childcare, you know, programs to deal with crime prevention—all these kind of things that really would have, which when Biden first put it out, said infrastructure is not just roads and bridges; it's people too. And he tried to sell it, and needless to say, we had pushback. And it was because people were not only angry at certain things, but they were scared of doing something that big and that great. They didn't have the political courage to push forward. And you only get one shot once you get elected to Congress to make a difference. Because once you're out, you're out. And you only get one shot being an elected official. Because once you're out, you're out. And, you know, there have been some stories about people getting reelected after they've served and lost or retired or whatever. Yeah, that's more of an anomaly than people would guess. And you you get into these positions to make those courageous decisions, right? To go for it. Doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, you go for it. And either you win or you lose, but you go for it. And a lot of the problem with compromising is a lot of people are ready to compromise before they actually go for it. And especially in this day and age, which in turn now has angered people, hence back to the reference of Virginia and New Jersey where people now are so angry, they're disillusioned. On one side, they're angry, disillusioned and will believe anything anybody tells them. And you have one side that's angry, disillusioned and won't believe anything until they see it actually come to fruition. And that's a very dangerous place for us to be in in America. And we've been playing this game for quite a while. And it's coming to the head. And those politicians who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s that are still in positions making decisions, they don't get it. They're so accustomed to a political lifestyle. They're so accustomed to a political process or how they view the process that they don't feel that anger and disillusionment. And if they do feel it, they have no clue how to deal with it, nor do they have the political courage to change it. And so when I say people are angry and disrespected, it's because they see it. People see a government whether it's at the local level or nationally, that they feel doesn't really care about them. And there's two different views as to why. You have one side who thinks that government is trying to exterminate the white race. And that's that seems pretty extreme, but they believe that. Hence the way that they politic. Then you have another side who doesn't necessarily thinks that they're gonna be exterminated, but they still feel second class. And then we're talking about black folks. Now you throw in Latino voters, you throw in Asian voters, you throw in voters based on their sexuality and you got a hodgepodge of mad. But what really is kind of infuriating African-Americans is that they see the government responding to Latinos. They see the government responding to Asians, but they don't really feel that they're responding to us. And if they do, it's an incredible backlash. Hence, Secretary of Transportation Buttigieg saying that part of the infrastructure package is to try to rectify wrongs in the infrastructure system that was based on racism. I don't know, I'm not that smart of an engineer to reverse history, but he did use that platform to highlight that a lot of decisions that were made were racially motivated, which prompted an incredible Backlash from Republicans as if he was doing a stand up routine rather than stating historical facts. Which has people angry, especially black people, because here's a guy who just pointed out what happened before, and that this legislation, this infrastructure bill that passed, is going to try to fix some of that. They feel angry and disrespected that people on the other side think that's a joke, that that's irrelevant. So, like I said, on the other side, we'll talk about anger and disrespect a little more and how to try to mitigate that. And then also kind of, in order to mitigate, it, you got to know where it's coming from. Right? So we'll do that on the other side. And so we're back. And I wanted to touch on this subject again, because the whole premise of my podcast is to bring an African American perspective to this with the advantage of somebody who actually had to govern or had the privilege of making policy decisions. right? So, you know, me being a person involved in the electoral process, I think that in order to address the concerns of Black people like me and other Black people is that we really need to respect why we are angry and why we feel disrespected. And so that last little tidbit I brought about people laughing at Secretary Buttigieg for bringing up historical facts about bridges being built so people wouldn't have access. I guess that was a thing back in the thirties where black kids and Puerto Rican kids would go on field trips to the beach and they made it so that access to the beaches, especially in Long Island, were limited. You couldn't take a bus. Now, I guess you could get several vans, but in the 1930s, vans weren't really an item. So henceforth, buses. Now, people have circumnavigated it since then, have generations have figured out alternate routes, and they still go. But... There was a thought process behind trying to minimize access. There was a thought process in building the Dan Ryan expressway in Chicago, where they built it. Uh, They didn't go West. They went East and divided up black communities, the interstate system in Miami basically literally almost destroyed a neighborhood, right? In Houston, you can see the interstate over a black church, literally built over a black church, right? So it's like to laugh at that is disrespectful. And I think if people on the other side want to get, more than 10% of the black vote. They've got to stop disrespecting black people. They've got to stop disrespecting black history. When you say, I don't want to teach critical race theory, great. Don't go to that law school that teaches it. They're not going to teach it at the elementary school where your child goes to. Whether a law says or not, they're not going to teach that. They're not going to teach critical race theory even at the high school your child goes to maybe not even at the public college, but if they go to law school, they can take that class. If they choose to, it's not required in the curriculum. But if you're an African-American who's trying to practice law in the United States, you might wanna have the historical background and look at all those laws that you've studied and all those techniques and figure how they were applied to minimize your opportunities as a citizen, let alone as becoming a lawyer. You might well learn it. If you don't want to, that's your option, but I'm about understanding why institutions are set up the way they are, why traditions and communities are what they are, why makeups of communities are what they are. And there's usually a historical foundation behind it. And so for politicians in the 21st century. If you want to mitigate anger in the black community, then you need to change your perspective about the history of African Americans in this country. You cannot be afraid of it. You cannot deny it. You can't whitewash it away. You have to accept it Build from the mistakes and go forward. If you choose to continue this path, then you are going to continue to get the results, right? And they say that if you keep doing the same thing over and over again and getting the same results, that's a form of insanity. That's how they define it, right? So it's a crazy proposition to think that you're going to pull more in if you continue to disrespect the heritage they come from and the struggle that they've endured since 1619. On the flip side, we have to recognize that white people are not as racist as they were. They have the potential based on the atmosphere to be because the politics is constantly still being driven by these, um, oh, what's the term they like to use? Um, Dog whistles, yeah. They like to still continue to utilize that and they use it because it works. Because the majority of white people I know or I've worked with I don't think they're racist. I don't know what their lives are privately. There's a few I do, but especially the ones that are really my friends, they don't necessarily agree with me politically on everything, but they're not racist, right? But if I tell them a story and give them a legitimate argument, I'm respected for that, right? But there's a flip side to that. So whether a white person in America is racist or not, it's not necessarily the issue. It's the issue of how the system has been structured, where there's this subliminal level of comfort in seeing a white person in charge as opposed to a person of color. I tried to address that and i I know I've mentioned this in a previous podcast somewhere because I tell this story because it's important for us to understand. There's this five letter word called trust and that's where that subliminal comfort comes in, right? I asked the question, it was was after I had lost the Senate race in 2008. And I was asked to participate in a forum to try to figure out why that happened. Why that America voted for a black president, but Mississippi didn't, right? And, you know, whatever. And I was caught up in that because I was running for the U.S. Senate at the time. So I asked the question, it was a mixed crowd. I mean, really, really a mixed crowd of blacks and whites at a, at a university. And I asked the question, how many of you in the audience have a black person that you deal with as far as managing your money? It was about 250 people in the audience. Out of that 250, two people raised their hand and only one of them was black. And so I pointed out, The United States government deals with trillions of dollars. Members that serve in the United States Senate and the United States Congress vote on a budget that deals with trillions of dollars. The president of the United States is the CEO of a corporation that's worth trillions of dollars. If you're not used to seeing black people make decisions over your personal finances, There's no way fathomable that you really, really, other than some other reasons that are more core racial reasons, why you could see a black person managing trillions of dollars or making decisions of trillions of dollars. There are some communities where, yeah, because we interact with each other all the time. And if the majority of the electorate is black, they're gonna to have to send up somebody black to represent them. But in most cases, the majority of electorates in certain districts are white. And when you're talking about nationwide, over 11, you know, it's over 50% for the first time it's under 60, but it's over 50% white. And so Most people who deal with their interactions, it's like you barely see a person of color acting as a broker in commercials, let alone actual people that you deal with, right? If you live in more urban areas, you're more likely to see it. But Kansas, North Dakota, no. Mississippi even. Outside of Jackson, not really. And so if you're not used to seeing people, if you're not around people, that's why you can't get a black person elected treasurer or a black person elected comptroller, let alone a governor or a member of Congress or Senate, right? Or president. It's a very real thing that, we have to understand historically white people in America have been in charge and the iconic figures in American political history have been white people. As we learn more about history in periods like reconstruction and the truth about how the Articles of the Confederation set up an office where the majority of those people that sat in that office during that period of time were African-Americans, free, free Africans. It was. you, You still had that mind. I mean, it's like when you look at Mount Rushmore, those are four white men. So. If your whole life you have seen people that look like you in charge all the time. It's a shock to the system when somebody that does not look like you emerges. For a lot of people, it was a feel good moment to be able to say, I voted for a black man to be president. And there are people who, after those eight years, feel like, man, he was a pretty decent guy. He did what he was supposed to do. He managed us out of a crisis, which people tend to forget (laughs) that when President Obama inherited the presidency, America was in a recession, a bad one. Gas was $5 a gallon. But he managed us out of a crisis and got us back to the road of recovery, which we were kind of recovering until the pandemic. But other than that aberration throughout history, white people have gotten their leave from people in their community, no matter how small the hamlet, no matter how big the stage. So when people of color start asserting themselves politically and you get dynamic people like a Dr. King or even a Malcolm X, or even before then, a Marcus Garvey, right? It's a shock to the system. When you hear a Louis Farrakhan express the anger of every black man that they really want to say, and they just can't because they don't have the same platform that he has. It's a shock to the system or whether it's Jeremiah Wright preaching from the pulpit on the South side of Chicago, it's a shock to the system. Oh, well, they're unpatriotic. Oh, and they hate us. And that no, they're angry. And you're not trying to understand why they're angry, you just want to condemn them for having the outburst or saying what's on their mind. If we, if we, you know, and then people are like, well, why do they want to tear down these statues and all that stuff? It's because of memory. One of my favorite schools, there was a rival of mine, Jackson State. One of my favorite schools has two conflicts with their athletic program. Right. Alcorn State University. They're called the Braves. Well, the Native American community, indigenous people of the United States. They don't like any reference to their culture being used as sports mascots as compared to like animals. Right. We get that. Although we root for them. you know, we root for our team. Those of us who have a political conscience understand, there's some people that don't really like that, right? But then Alcorn even goes further back that it's actually named after a white guy who owned slaves. But Alcorn State's not going to change the name. They entertained changing the name of the team. That didn't go over well. But they did they're not gonna, you know, they actually win a season as the A's or something like that. I can't remember. But they're not changing the name of school because there's too much history tied into that. Just like Mississippi University for Women wanted to change women, they still wanted to call it the W, so they wanted to call it Eudora Welty University or something like that, right? And that didn't go over well with the alumni. Even though men go to the school, don't want really to change that because of the history, the emotional ties to that name, right? So they don't say University Women anymore. They say the W. And, you know, it's Alcorn, not Alcorn, as most people say outside of Mississippi, right? It's all, like all of us together, right? But they're not going to change the name despite the history of that guy because because of that guy, Alcorn existed, he was the governor that pushed for land-grant schools. He was the one saying that states that are segregated in the South need to have, if you're going to have a land-grant school for white kids, you got to have one for the black ones. That guy who owned slaves, who still pushed segregation, but he said they need public universities just like the white kids. Hence the name. Right? But you're not gonna get anybody from Alcorn to change the name of the school based on the history. There's no statues of him on the campus. <laughs> I mean, the school's named after him. Don't really need a statue for him, but you get where I'm coming from? It's it's like it's it's but if you don't understand the history, you don't you don't get the convolutions and then you don't deal with the complexities. And then you don't even try to find a solution. You've got to understand on both sides, black people and white people have to understand where each other is coming from. For those who are militant on both sides, they are who they are. And we, we respect their place as the minority thought but for the majority of us who will intermingle with each other at some point whether it's at a concert or at a football game or wherever at work we've got to learn how to start communicating and understanding each other a lot better we may suck in geography in the united states but we shouldn't suck in history Because the whole reputation of the United States is based on our history, how we have managed to become this powerful nation in a short period of time. You know, all these other countries have been around for thousands of years and we haven't even cracked 300 yet in the scope of world history. So we're still considered the youngest, most powerful nation in the world. And yet, we seem to have this aversion of not wanting to pay attention or not respecting each other's history and culture and dynamics. There's a reason why certain things happen the way they happen. And history is your clues. You can find out why that particular town said every black person had to get out by sundown and another town said you could stay all night. There's history behind it. There's history behind why Memphis and Atlanta and New Orleans seem to do better than Jackson or even Birmingham to a degree as far as growth. And it had to do with how they dealt with segregation, how strong they enforced the law, how crazy it got or didn't get, right? Atlanta is uh, considered a hotbed of civil rights, not just for the black people who lived and worked there and came from there. Well, it was some white people doing some work too. One of, I forget the name of the publication now, but there was a major publication that dealt with changing the South from being segregated to this integrated, economically viable area. And they were still publishing that magazine well into the 90s. Core group of people. Very similar to the abolitionists back during the slavery era. So there's nuances that people need to understand. And if they understand them better, then you won't be so quick to get angry. You can start using that same energy to work toward a solution. But if I'm going to be disrespected for my heritage, for my history, then I'm going to be angry. One for the disrespect because and then two, the results of your lack of respect, which means that the public policies that you put out there, the edicts that you throw out there are not going to be beneficial to me. As a black person. I really wish that would change as I'm at a point in my life now where I have to deal with the fact that my time is growing shorter. I would like to see a realistic movement toward that. And I would like to try to contribute to it, whether it's the podcast or by some other means. I tried as an elected official. And although more of my radical agenda didn't get passed in the legislative process, it was brought up. Whatever I could think of, whatever ideas I could glean from others, I threw it out there because I felt there needed to be a discussion. Even if it was just a reporter saying, why did you introduce that bill? Got it out there. And even explaining A simple bill, when you break down the history as to why, what was your thought process into doing that, people tend to respect it better than just reading the short title on a legislative calendar. It's all about gaining respect for one another. It's all about learning a little bit more about each other when you learn about the Latino culture, when you learn about the Asian Pacific Islander culture, when you learn about the indigenous people culture, you feel their pain. And, and then you look and say, well, how did that get them to a point where they are moving forward with it? I think the Latino culture is struggling, not as much as us, but they're struggling. but other cultures and indigenous people definitely because we still have reservations, right? But, you know, it, it's fascinating. And then and you learn things about, oh my God, they did that to them? They actually passed that law because of them? Then you realize that one, black people are not alone in this thing, right? Anybody who wasn't white was a target. And then when you really study the history of the United States and you look at how certain white folks went after other white folks, right? If you were from Ireland, oh my goodness. If you were Italian, oh my goodness. What did you go through to get here, right? Mindsets. Even how the Mormon church evolved the Church of Latter-day Saints, right? The persecution that white people put on those white folks because one man felt that he he talked to Jesus in person in Illinois. Right? If you understand power, power has to get its origin from somewhere. The kings of of old day in, in Europe said God gave them that power, right? They had a reason. Power in the United States has developed because of history, because of certain things. I always talk about the Harvard-Yale power base, right? How those two schools wanted to divide up the leadership of the nation. Yale was the conservative, Harvard was the liberal, and it was based on theology, let alone, and that emerged into politics. I mean, if we don't want to be an angry nation anymore, if we don't want to feel disrespected anymore, then we have to start learning about each other. And we have to respect what we learn. And we have to internalize it to the point where it triggers something in our conscience to be a more aware of what is right and what is wrong and not just be blanketed by disillusioned comfort, right? Or delusional comfort, I guess would be a better word. Because if you're white in America, you should not be comfortable. If you're black in America, you already know you're not comfortable. Maybe you should be more, but you've got to understand each other's history to really become comfortable because the softest pillow any man can lay on is a clear conscience. And if you are given the facts, and if you are amenable to accepting the facts and you can solve a problem based on the variables that you are given, right? This really could be the city on the hill. This country really could be a shining beacon to the world. And it won't come across as being hypocritical or come across as being nice marketing, but an actual, actual fact. And I believe in that. You know, every election gives me hope. When we talked about that last, last podcast. But when people study history, they make decisions. And they make good ones nine out of 10 times. So if we don't wanna be an angry, disrespected nation, then we have to learn to channel our anger into something more positive and more creative. And we have to respect each other for who we are and where we come from. And if we do the latter, The former will happen until next time.